The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Hey, how's it going, guys? Today's podcast, we're going to talk about fear in dogs. It's a big topic. There's a lot we can talk about. But before we get into it, I'm going to let Jess this week give us the tip of the day. We still got to be the pig guy. I got it. All right, great. So um, one thing that we've seen a lot with people, with dogs, with fear, is they want to use CBD. Everybody uses CBD now for everything. I know. We're in St. John this spring, and CBD is being sold everywhere. CBD is rampant. So um, that's all fine and good. Uh, CBD is really expensive, and if you are seeing results with the CBD you're using with your dog, that is awesome. Personally, with Scott and myself, um, we have seen better results from health perspectives and behavioral perspectives like anxiety and everything else um, and even fear with CBD that contains some THC. You mean the stuff that gets you high? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, love. smokes. So um, there are some videos about making that product on um, our Canine Healing YouTube page, but it really has helped some of our older dogs go into their senior years and deal with some stuff they've been dealing with. And our extreme anxiety cases We just really didn't see the regular CBD touching it, and we wanted to believe in the product and have the dogs be helped by the product and everything else, but it seems like the CBD with THC, especially if you've already tried the CBD, check that out, and it might be the missing link for you and your dog. If your dogs are named Cheech and Chong, that would be the perfect... (laughs) Okay, you want to kick this thing off? Yeah. We have a couple of different reasons why... Yeah, dogs and can be fear fearful. And dogs is just becoming a thing. I don't know. People are needing more medications. Dogs are getting crazier. The whole world's kind of going cattywampus, as Scott likes to say. So I say that quite a bit. He does say that quite a bit. So um, one fear can be genetic. So just because your dog is a little bit fearful, um, even if you had a rescue, you know, people have these big sob stories of oh, the dog was kicked by a man and lived under the shed of a house and no one ever loved it and it was abused by the newspaper. And, you know, they say all this. And Sounds then, like a terrible story. I know. And Scott will say, oh, like, how do you know this? Oh, well, you can just tell based on the dog's behavior. So, yes, rescues sometimes do have a hard luck story before they get to us. And um, But the bottom line is we don't really know what that story was. And even their fear can sometimes be genetic. Yeah. I mean, a good example of a genetic fear would be noise sensitivity. And uh, and that can tie into fireworks and it can, it can tie into any number of sharp, loud noises that'll make a dog spook and run and bolt. Another thing could be you know, and I think about this with the police and military dogs, uh, slippery floors, you know, surfaces, shiny surfaces can make dogs nervous. And fear is a, you know, a fight or flight response. So the dog is thinking, oh, something here is not good and I should stop. And not every dog, most dogs don't have a, a fear of slippery floors. It doesn't mean that your dog was beaten if you get a rescue on a slippery floor. And that's why they're afraid to go on the linoleum. It's just some dogs, that's a quirky little thing that some dogs have, and it's a genetic thing. And I don't think that that can be fixed. I don't think you can fix a genetic fear. You can 
counter condition the heck out of it. You can mask it through obedience. You can help the dog certainly be more comfortable, but it's always going to be there. And that's why a lot of dogs wash out of these uh, police and military programs, as well as therapy dog programs. They typically wash out of these programs over fear issues. And if they were easy to fix, they certainly wouldn't wash the dogs out because they spend a tremendous amount of time and money to get these dogs through these programs. And the last thing they want to do is start over with another dog. Yeah. And when Scott talks about therapy dogs, like service dogs, that kind of thing, you know, dogs for the blind and everything else. So, you know, these dogs were genetically bred to produce a strong police dog. They were genetically bred to produce a really biddable service dog. And they know because they're professionals and these dogs are expensive and there's extensive years of training done that if there is something like a slippery floor fear in these dogs, it's not worth working through because it's going to pop up in some way, shape or form down the road. And we're experienced dog trainers. We understand that, like Scott said, you can make fears better, but it still kind of is a part of who the dogs are. And even if you haven't seen it for years, something may pop up, you know, that reminds you of, oh yeah, that dog gets a little bit quirky about this. So Yes, fear can be genetic, and um, sound sensitivity and floors are good examples of genetic fear. Fear can also be taught. So if your dog is, let's say someone new comes over and your dog's a little bit afraid because there's a stranger in the house, and then you run over and coddle the dog and say, it's okay, Sparky, everything's fine, Jim's a nice man, everything else, and you start consoling the dog, then the dog starts saying, holy crap, like I should be afraid of this guy, I don't know why this person's here, I don't know what's happening. And every stranger that comes over, the dog acts this way and you rehearse this same routine. Now you're actually teaching your dog to be fearful and you're kind of implanting a fear into your dog. Yeah, it's really easy to make a small, fearful event into a major friggin' problem just by the amount of attention you give it and how you, you know, deal with it. So, I mean, there's a lot of little things where it doesn't require a lot of counter conditioning, but you just taking kind of a leadership role and just taking your dog by the leash. Come on, let's go. You know, we don't have time for your baloney here with this. And and then they think, oh, okay, I guess it's not a big deal because mom and dad aren't really making a big deal out of it. But if you stop and and make a big deal out of it, then it can become a big deal. If you have a dog who, you know, they get scared at the vet and their tail is tucked underneath and the owner is just petting them saying, it's okay, baby, it's okay. Every time they go to the vet, they're going to think, holy crap is something really bad here and and they're getting reinforced uh that fear is being nurtured and that's not a good thing it's 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 in my mind it's like animal abuse you know you're kind of teaching a dog to be completely pathetic and fearful all the time and that's not what we want we want to make our dog strong confident and help them you know get through some of these issues yeah and it's hard it's not it's not pleasant to see your dog suffering and scared and everything else but like um, for instance, my border collie, she just went into heat recently and Scott was using the fly swatter the other day and she was like, she was on her bed, but she was scared. Like she was really concerned about that freaking fly swatter. And I'm sure it was, it was the noise, right? Yeah. When, when, when he would go to swat. Yeah. And she, and I looked at her, I'm like, why is she hitting the deck? What's going on? And I'm sure that was amplified because of her hormones and the fact that she was going to be going into heat and everything else. But I said to Scott, okay, we'll do like a quiet one. And I just said to her, hey, you're a big kid, no big deal. And then I released her off her bed and I actually like had her pick up the fly swatter and do some stupid little games with it and everything else. But like, I say that a lot to my dogs, like you're a big kid. It's okay. You're gonna be a big kid about this. And that's kind of the presence that you need to have with them. If you totally go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Everything's so scary. You're going to be fine. And you just start coddling them. Now, all of a sudden something that 
could have just been a fleeting moment, a passing thing in their minds becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And we often see fear and anxiety very intertwined and they're two separate things, but a dog that is shaking and very concerned in a new environment, or they literally walk into a room that isn't their house and they defecate or something because they're just so stressed being out of their home. Nothing even happens. They're just so stressed being out of their environment. A lot of times that is anxiety also. It's not just that, oh, the dog's scared. You're starting to bleed into some anxiety too. So you want to get kind of on top of these little fear issues because fear is something that you can work with and you can sometimes control and everything else. Whereas anxiety kind of becomes who the dog is as a being. And it's a little bit bigger task to tackle, if you will. There's still ways to help that and rehab that, but the fear and anxiety are closely related. So you really want to try to pinpoint what your dog's fears are and do your best to handle it appropriately when your dog does show a fear response. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell my clients all the time when I was a little kid, uh, using myself uh, as an analogy for their young dogs and uh, fear issues. When I was a little kid, I didn't want to go play with all the other kids. I didn't want to join Little League. I didn't want to do the Cub Scouts. I didn't want to play hockey. I didn't want to be involved in all these group activities. And uh, if I if it were up to me, I wouldn't have done anything as an eight-year-old kid except stay in my room, maybe do some reading, or just kind of, I did some fishing, kept to myself. You know, it was almost like a social anxiety. But my parents said, you're going to go out, try out for the little league team. You're going to go play hockey. You're going to um, go join the Cub Scouts. Do it at least for a year. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it next year, but you're going to try it. And they made me try everything. And I wound up doing the little league for several years. And I wound up uh, doing the Cub Scouts for several, year, several years. And I had a good time. You know, I, didn't get, I wasn't crazy about the hockey. I did it for one season because I wasn't a great skater. But they made me get out there and get involved and... I wound up enjoying it, you know? So you need to help these young dogs or any dog that has some fear issues get outside of themselves and, and be an advocate for them and give them some confidence through your direction, you know? Yeah, because their world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller when they now seemingly are just afraid of anything and everything, you know, and you don't want that for your dog either. And another thing is, especially with a younger dog, they go through fear periods. So there are certain ages that different breeds will experience fear periods. And some are way more significant than others. You know, some fear periods, the car horn honks and a dog kind of, oh, what was that? And that's a fear period. And some of them are really extreme and the dogs exhibit really extreme behaviors. But if you don't know your puppy's baseline of fear before they hit a fear period, you don't really know if it's the puppy itself exhibiting this or if they're just going through a fear period. And especially with fear periods, it's important to just kind of take everything with a grain of salt. Like, oh yeah, it's okay. That's there and work through it. If you start to make a thing out of it, if you start to really train it, okay, every day you're going to honk the car horn and I'm going to feed and you're going to do this and I'm going to feed. You're going to make a bigger problem. It's going to be a bigger problem. So you really want to be mindful of that, that you know, you know the baseline of how your puppy may respond in different situations. And we don't know 100% how dogs are going to respond at any point. I'm not saying that you need to be fully aware of everything, but you need to have a general idea of like, yeah, I think that dog will be fine there. Oh, might freak out. So then when you do see something that's abnormal, you're able to address that more easily and um, help the dog through it more easily also. Yeah. One thing that's really important to me with my dogs is that I don't allow their fear to control their physical behavior. And uh, what I mean by that is, let's say you got a rescue. The rescue is new to your home. 
And it could, most likely, it's going to be a little fearful. It's in a new environment, and it's, who knows, it's just traveled 3,000 miles in the back of a bus. It's got, a, you know, a lot of stuff going on. But if someone comes in the room, and that puppy or that young dog gets up now and runs and hides behind the couch, and you say, okay, just let him stay behind the couch, and when he's comfortable, he'll come out, the dog may wind up defaulting to living behind the couch. They're always behind the couch. Every time someone moves, they run behind the couch. And I would put a leash on the dog. You don't need to make a big deal out of it, but I would just not allow the dog to physically retreat. And, uh, you know, dogs will either, that fight or flight, they're either going to retreat. And some, you know, the worst fear is when they aggress, when they go at the thing they're afraid of. And that's not a good thing. And it's, they're far and few between dogs like that. But uh, the best thing is to put a leash on them and just not allow their fear to control their behavior because the whole thing is likely to pass much faster if they're not allowed to go run and hide behind a couch and, and live back there, you know? Yeah, and I um, use it in regards to, like, I would, every dog that came through our board and train program, I would, um, you know, give them a bath and cut their nails and dry them with a blow dryer what and everything else. What are you holding else. there, Jess, for the podcast I got, listeners? <laughs> I got the hair dryer going on. Um, so this isn't a human hair dryer. This is a more industrial dog hair dryer going on. But I would explain all the time to people that if I had a dog loose, we used to have a big 2,400 square foot room with rubber on it. And if I just had that dog not on a leash and I turned this dryer on and I started running after the dog, drying it, the dog would be one, very afraid of the dryer and I wouldn't get very far. I'm not going to ask a dog to sit and stay while I dry it or something, you know? I, so I physically would control these dogs by putting them on a leash, holding them by the collar, turn the dryer on. You know, when it first goes on, it's on a lower level. It's facing away from the dogs and then do the dog a little bit. But they can't allow their fear to control them and retreat from that activity. And really what that's doing is it's raising their adrenaline, it's heightening their fear, and it's making the whole situation a lot worse than it ever had to be. So allowing your dog's body to control its fear is really very detrimental. So not only can you nurture the fear and make the fear a lot worse, allowing the dog's body to control its fear is definitely not helpful either. So after the break, we're gonna give you guys some more tips on fear in dogs and keep them as brave as possible. Does your dog lack self-control? Are you looking for some answers? Would you like your dog to be calmer? Does your dog lack confidence? Canine MindShift. Enroll in a free course today. Simply go to caninemindshift.com. That's caninemindshift.com. There he is. Scott's here. Yep. Welcome back. Uh, one thing I wanted to say before I hand this off to Jess, she's telling me I'm all over our, our outline here because I talk too much. But um, one thing uh, I wanted to mention is that there's a lot of sources out on the internet, there's a lot of behaviorists that really don't agree with a lot of the things we're saying. Uh, it's it's interesting. You know, they, um, they're they much bigger into the counter conditioning and they would have you, like this issue with the dryer. They might have you dry and feed the dog, turn the dryer on, turn it off, feed the dog, and, and go through this protocol to get the dog desensitized to the dryer. And that's, you guys can do that if you want. I mean, you could take six months to get your dog kind of used to the dryer. It, it, it may get better. It may not. 
uh, it's been our experience that we've had people come in that have done those type of protocols for some people as long as 18 months pretty diligently and have had no success. So, And on top of that, especially with the behaviorists, not only are they giving a lengthy protocol, they're often also prescribing prescription drugs. And um, we haven't brought that up in this podcast because we yeah. saw very little effect of the prescription drugs helping with our clients' dogs, unfortunately. Um, and if it did work, like we're into whatever works. We want dogs to be as happy as they can be and owners to be able to live with the dogs as easily as they can and our life just to be merry, really. But it just wasn't helping, it seemed. And what was happening was the dosages were getting higher and higher and higher and higher until you just had a dog that slept in the corner and didn't really notice a stranger coming into the house or couldn't get up to be aggressive because it was so drowsy. And then people were happy because the problem was fixed. We'll get the the family plan for those. No, but you really, you want to be thoughtful of that. And another thing a lot of people are saying out there, people are big about reading about stuff like this on the internet. It's okay if you coddle your dog, it won't get worse. You can totally make your dog feel good and feel comfortable. And that's a natural thing to do. And parents do it for kids and yada, yada, yada. Well, that's true to an extent. But even when your kid falls down and skins its knee, you know, you say, oh, you know, you look, okay, no stitches. It's okay. I know you're, you're going to be okay. That's kind of like you're a big kid again. They go into that phase rather than they're just looking at that knee and checking on it every hour and icing the knee and making a bigger deal out of it. Now, all of a sudden, the kid is falling all over the place, always crying, always getting concerned about stuff. You know, you kind of want to work them through that as quickly as possible, no matter what pops up. So people will say, if you coddle, it won't affect anything. You know, it's good for you. It's good for the dog. But we see it day in, day out that people reinforcing fear and even fear and anxiety, it's just growing those behaviors and those feelings to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. It's like if you grow up in a house and you had uh, four or five siblings, usually the kids are more balanced than a one kid in an only family type thing, you know? Yeah. Only so, child that's being the center of attention 24-7. Yeah. yeah. So you just want to be really thoughtful about um, what you're reading. And again, if you're reading something and you're not seeing the results that you're supposed to then maybe change course. You know what I mean? I understand about going to professionals and listening to vets and finding a trainer who you can kind of have a same belief system with and then reading, you know, behaviorists and blogs and everything online. I get that. But if it's not working for you, then don't keep doing it. Like switch it up. Things, it shouldn't be so difficult. And um, Scott briefly touched on it before, but fear and aggression is very interrelated also. So fear is a big topic for us because you're getting some anxiety fallout or um, it's kind of like a core morbid thing where you have the anxiety and the fear together. And then you're also getting fear and aggression that are closely related to each other. And it is that fight or flight thing that Scott was talking about. And it kind of seems like completely unprovoked aggression, like, oh, so-and-so was always sweet until, you know, this person went to give her a treat and kind of cornered her, and then out of nowhere, she lashed out and bit the person. Yeah, and that's usually from people just not being able to read the dog's behavior at all. You know, they just don't know what they're looking at, and the dog is typically frozen, you know, and um, the ears back, all that kind of stuff, and um, people are just oblivious. They just go right in and try and pet the dog or grab the dog by the collar and put a leash on it or something like that. And then the dog snaps at them and they think it was totally unprovoked because they just are not taking a moment to really read that dog's behavior. We have clients that have do- um, dog walkers come to the home. One of the dogs has a territorial type of situation. And uh, when the dog is in a crate, they can go in, get the dog out of the crate, take the dog for a walk. When the dog is loose in the house, it will retreat and um, 
you know, its fear starts, it's barking and it's, and then it's retreating and then it will aggress and it just turns into a crazy situation, you know? Yeah. And most of the aggression that we saw was honestly fear aggression. Like there aren't hundreds of dogs out there that just want to kill everything in sight for the fun of it. That reactivity often stems from a place of anxiety or lack of structure or something else. Most of the fear that we would see that actually was escalating into bites was fear aggression. And just because it's fear aggression, that doesn't mean that it can't be forward fear aggression, like Scott's talking about, if the dog's cornered. Or a really good example of fear aggression is when you're going to leave the house and then the dog chases after you and bites the back of your pants. You know what I mean? They're, they're like, oh, you know, that's, that's some place that it can kind of surface. So you really want to get on top of this fear stuff so it doesn't spin into aggression and make a bigger problem for you and maybe a lawsuit and everything else. And then one thing you really want to consider is fear is simply a distraction. Um, and people have a hard time understanding that. But what do you if, mean by that? <laughs> if you're, especially Scott, he has a hard time understanding that. <laughs> but if you have a dog um, that's doing a sit-stay, for instance, and then you drop a hot dog in front of him as a distraction and um, you know you expect the dog not to break the sit, well, if the dog's afraid of pans and a pan drops in the other room and the dog breaks a sit, often people will say, oh, well, he was scared. You know, he had to get up. He was afraid of everything. And in a sense, I see where people are coming from. But from a perspective of having reliability and keeping your dog safe and everything else, that fear is just a distraction. So we expect our dogs to be able to hold their behaviors and deal with some fear because they're supposed to hold criteria to what they're doing. So like when my dog the other night was a little afraid of the fly swatter on the bed, Scott used to have that with his dog when he was chopping wood. So the dog would be really afraid of chopping wood. He'd be on his bed and be like, oh my God, here comes the ox and here comes everything. So we didn't really counter condition it because counter conditioning fear in that sense can actually just be reinforcing the dog being in that fearful state, if that makes sense. So the dog's on the bed, you start chopping wood, I feed the dog. Okay, here you go. Here's cookies. Here's cookies. Here's cookies for the chopping. One, some dogs won't eat when they're fearful, so that doesn't work. And two, I may be actually reinforcing that dog's state of mind, being like, holy shit, I got to get out of here. That's really scary. And I'm actually feeding that state of mind. So a better approach to that type of thing might be tempering fear. So what we would do for him is put him on the bed, do like one little light chop, release him off, big party, and not just have him work through starting a whole fire with the axe chopping the wood right in front of him. So be mindful of those things because the way you handle it and also the way you set up situations that you know are going to trigger fear really have a huge impact on how the dog deals with stuff. Yeah, have a little plan in place. If you know your dog is fearful of certain things, don't just say, oh, there he goes again, you know, running behind the couch or biting the mailman. No, you know, just have a little protocol, have a plan of action and, uh, be proactive on the front end before the stuff happens, you know? Yeah. And you want to talk about treadmills? Love to talk about treadmills. Awesome. So uh, several years ago, Jess and I did a pet expo and we brought two treadmills with us. And uh, in our booth, we thought, oh, we'll get, you know, anyone that has a dog there, we'll invite them to, you know, let us put their dog on the treadmill. And we put over a hundred dogs on a treadmill. We had a little dog treadmill and a a standard size. And we did over a hundred dogs that day. It was a very, very busy day. And uh, out of the hundred dogs, I mean, we might have had one or two that just were a little too fearful to actually walk on a moving belt. I think that 99% of them actually did it. I can't even remember having a big problem there. But the reason I bring it up is because it's a fearful thing when you put a dog on a treadmill and the, the, the ground is moving. It's natural that they get nervous, you know, and they're like, oh, crap, what's going on? And they want to bail. They want to get off of that thing. So... 
you can work them through it. We, we do this all the time with many dogs, usually after about three sessions. They enjoy and look forward to getting on the treadmill. But we have a leash on them. We have food to, to get, you know, try and make a positive experience out of it. But more importantly, we don't let their fear allow them to jump off the side of the treadmill and get out of doing the behavior. We'll turn it on as soon as they start walking on their own, which might take a minute, might take three minutes. But as soon as they start walking on their own, we turn the belt off. We get them off the treadmill. That's it. You're done. We may turn around, put them right back on again. And we're just kind of getting them used to this whole activity. And the reason that um, uh, we brought it up is because we know of other dog organizations that have given away a lot of treadmills because none of the dogs could walk on a treadmill. Every dog they put on there was afraid. They didn't know how to work through it. They felt bad for the dog and they thought, oh, these treadmills are no good. We can't use these. So, you know, it's, it's hard when you, if you don't know what to do and you see a dog that's afraid and uncomfortable with something, it's natural to want to back off and say, oh, we shouldn't, we should stop. This isn't normal. Yeah. Well, and I think, especially at that pet expo that Scott was talking about that we did, probably the couple dogs that we didn't get on were, they were so big and they didn't want to actually walk onto the belt and we weren't going to now risk lifting yeah. up a 150 pound dog that wasn't our client to get him on the treadmill. Yeah, I don't even so, remember a bad situation. Yeah, I don't there. either, but that would be a situation that, you know, oh, people go to lure the dog up on the treadmill belt with food. Oh, the dog's afraid. It's not eating. You know, I can't get him on the belt. But what we well, did have, we did have people say, oh, he looks not happy. You know, I, I distinctly, because when they're first walking and it's new and they're nervous, their ears may be down, their tails may be down. They're not happy-go-lucky. They're focused on this belt thinking, oh, crap, what's going on here, you know? Yeah, but if you can, a lot of times even if you have a human treadmill, if you can walk on the belt with the dog, okay, now they're on the treadmill. They don't even realize that they're there. The thing starts. If you start the treadmill too slow, that can be an immediate sinker. That can really ruin the whole experience. So sometimes you got to get up to a mile to a mile and a half right away so the dog can actually move its feet underneath itself. You offer food. The dog wants to eat. Great. Doesn't eat. They keep moving. You can work through fear very quickly, like within two to three sessions. And a lot of dogs with the treadmill, by the third or fourth session, they're like, woo, get me on, you know, and they want to eat cookies the whole time and everything else. So just be thoughtful of these things. Just because you see your dogs showing fear somewhere, if you just back off from all that and you don't address it, that's not going to help you in the long run. That's not going to help your dog in the long run. It's not going to help your dog's psyche in the long run. And it's not going to help life with your dog in the long run either because you're now more limited to what you're able to do with your yeah, dog. Their world just keeps getting smaller and smaller, you know? That's what yeah, you don't want. Yeah, and we really, we've seen it all the time. And fear is becoming like an epidemic, it seems. But a lot of times the owners are not helping it and the owners are actually fostering it. And whether it's a rescue or a puppy or an adult dog or anything else, you just need to think, okay, like this is what's going to happen. These are our marching orders. We're going to work through this together and we're going to do the best we can. And you guys have to remember that fear is natural. It's a survival instinct. It may never fully dis disappear, especially like that genetic fear we were talking about. But you want to be very thoughtful of how you respond to your dog when it acts fearful because that can really make or break the situation. Yeah. And you got to be a little assertive yourself. Yeah. yeah, that's true. All right. Next week, we're going to deal with how to pick a dog trainer. There's a lot of dog trainers out there. Which one's best for you and your dog? If you need anything from us, write us at studio at thequirkydog.com and keep it quirky this week. <laughs>